Hello and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Barone Halavati, Senior Quant Analyst at JP Morgan. Barone has 20 plus years of quantitative machine learning and data analytics experience. On this episode, Barone talks about how asset managers, PE firms, corporates, and governments are using data. He also discusses natural language processing, his predictions for the future, and much more. Please enjoy this dialogue between Barone Halavati and your host, Emmett Kilduff. Barone, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. You're based in Sydney, Australia. Has your data analytics career ever called for you to move abroad? Actually, yeah, I've been invited numerous times to relocate for the business into different parts of the world, like New York or London or even Hong Kong or Japan. And each time I've been reluctant for family reasons and um, sometimes getting quite nervous, especially post-GFC when there was a big restructure going on. But we held our ground and uh, thankfully we got to stay in Sydney and enjoy all the lifestyle benefits of being in Australia. Very good. Um, let's jump into the meat of the podcast, which is all about you know profiting from data and use cases and so on. Um, so you know, given where you sit, really like to uh, understand your view of how buy side firms are using all of this new alternative data. Actually, we've seen a massive increase in interest in alt data. What we've done is at all of our quantitative macro conferences that we host around the world the last three or four years, we've been asking our um, guests to fill out a survey during the event to talk about how they're using alt data, what they're seeing and so on, so we can get some direct feedback. And every time the use of alt data has been increasing, um, but mainly in limited ways. We've seen generally one to three or one to five data sets being explored by uh, the, the buy side clients. And are there specific you know, categories or use cases you're seeing? Well, the biggest category, I think, is natural language processing, but we're seeing interest in all forms of different data, um, be it you know, the satellite imagery and mapping data to location data and you know, Google search trend history um, and even you know, um, the, the retail stock picking um, websites and, and forums and chat sites and so on, as well as Twitter and, and the like. I mean, you sit within the quantitative team. Do you think NLP is predominantly used by quants or also in discretionary and other types of uh, asset managers? Uh, if you think about quantitative processes, they've historically always only ever looked at the numbers and they've left quite a lot of detail on the on the table in terms of what's available from analysts, from company management, from reporters and so on. So having access to natural language processing is a natural addition to any quant process, I think. But what we're also seeing is traditional fund managers are getting swamped with data. There's, you know, 10 to 100 analysts covering every stock and no one has time to read all of their different opinions to see which one actually has any insight over and above the market view. And so we're seeing a lot of um, traditional fund managers starting to look at alt data and NLP, especially to try and help manage that, um, that data volume problem. 
And for NLP, are you seeing um, most funds do this in-house or seek an outsourced solution? It's the classic question of buy versus build, I think. What we've seen is if you want to get up and running relatively quickly, then obviously it's faster to, to buy a vendor solution and there's a myriad of different vendors offering all sorts of analytics. Um and some of them are more advanced than others. And the problem with that is you don't actually have any control or real knowledge about how that NLP system works, what it's doing, and especially around the edge cases, you know, where there's a marginal signal um, or where the, the language is a bit complex and the obvious answer isn't necessarily the correct answer uh, according to what the machine learning algo picks up. So sometimes if you want that level of control, then you need to obviously build it yourself, but then you burden yourself with all of that um, specific domain expertise that you need to build up and develop. And so it becomes a little bit more difficult to um, maintain. So you, you, you know, you're bearing the full development cost rather than sharing it with others. There's uh, you know, here at Eagle Alpha, there's a lot of vendors that we know that have, uh, you know, sentiment and NLP offerings. But it, it, it's quite hard to know from our perspective and our client's perspective, you know, who has the best NLP engines. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I haven't actually put them in any kind of horse race to see which one might be better or worse than the others. Um what I have seen is a very good demonstration from Refinitiv on their NLP algorithm, and the way they use it is very much geared towards understanding. So they break down, say, an, an earnings report um, by category of um, topics, so whether it's revenue or margins or dividends or distributions and, and so on, and give you sentiment around each of those different um uh, sections of the business and balance sheet and so on. So I think that is a very good mechanism to help explain the sentiment and the overall output, uh, very uh, visual as well, so you can drill down into it and see the sentences that were flagged relevant and so on. So it gives you a little bit of a sense of trust in the in the model which I think can be missing if you just um, pass it raw text and get one output number. And what type of NLP work are you doing at JP Morgan at the moment? I'd like to say that we've really kind of um, run the full history of 30 plus years of NLP in the last three. So we started off with the traditional uh, machine learning approach before GPUs of just counting bags of words and counting term frequency and so on. And then we quickly switched on the word to VEC approach and had a look at that. We then looked at the way you process data and, and natural language. And one of the traditional things is to take long sentences and remove all the stop words, the common at, then, this, the type of words that don't add any meaning to the overall sentence. And what we found when we looked at what was left is key phrases. And what we thought was we would isolate these phrases and uh, we call it the smart buzz framework where we train a word to vec style algorithm, but on phrases. 
And that phrase to VEC approach gives us uh, quite a little, uh, an edge, we think, in, in how we uh, analyze text. Things like the, the classic one that we look at is free cash flow. If you feed free cash flow into a standard NLP algorithm, it's three separate words and they don't carry that much meaning. But when you combine them as free cash flow, then it has a whole new meaning and it's very specific to the finance industry. So we, we think using a combination of general machine learning and then fine tuning it for finance is, is definitely required. Um, and so we've extended beyond the, the phrase to VEC and we've had a look at um, some of the BERT packages as well, like FinBERT and, um, and FinBERT gives you some sentiment scoring algorithms that have been pre-trained on financial sentences as well. So they take into account double negatives and that kind of thing as well. So it's quite helpful. Very good. Um, NLP was one area you mentioned. You mentioned also Google uh, data, uh, search data. Uh, could you give some examples of how that's being used? Yeah, so we're actually using it in one of our COVID index, um, for example. So when COVID hit, we wanted to build up a model and understanding of um, what were the implications across various signals, uh, things like um, the Google Trends, what are people searching for, as you mentioned. But right away, we came into a little bit of a bottleneck with Google Trends. You can only typically put five terms in and you can only get a couple of weeks worth of um, data back before it starts to shift into weekly timeframes or monthly timeframes and so on. So it, it really becomes quite limiting, especially if you want to have a look at high frequency daily data. And so, yeah, we, we found out about um, uh, your search management tool uh, that Egalauf has just put out and we started using that to manage the search terms and the history. And we found that's a really good way to use Google Trends and get uh, higher grained and longer running histories. So, so you mentioned COVID-19 as a use case. Uh, how else are you thinking about using uh, Google Trends data? Uh, so we're also thinking about looking at macro data as well. So using it as, um, as like a, a, a country or sector timing tool. So look at the different trends across different countries and seeing um, you know, which countries might be more in favor or out of favor, that type of thing. Um, something we'd need to also think about in terms of a sentiment view, combining it with news and other analytical sources as well. Mm. Um, it's actually interesting. We recently hosted a talk at our quant conference and one of the speakers presented some research on the efficiency of markets. And he showed, uh, this was Talis Putnans from the UTS, uh, showed that the market efficiency was increasing over the last few decades in terms of stock level efficiency. So, you know, buying and selling individual securities has become very, very efficient, but the market has become less efficient at macro timing. So country allocation or sector allocation is still a bigger opportunity there. Um, and so that's, I think, where some of these tools like the uh, search trends can help give you uh, a better edge at the macro level. Uh, do you think Google Trends data or other forms of data could be useful for the US election? 
Yeah, I do. And Google Trends is a very good source, um, but obviously that's just what people are searching for. It's not what they're writing or what they're what they're reading. And so I think as much information as you can glean from what people are searching about, you really need to also look at the answers that they're seeking uh, to get an understanding. So I think it's important to have access to a news feed. Uh, headlines are a good start, but I think full text news is is worth paying for. And then there's also, um, you know, the Twitter feeds and other social media sources. The problem with using those sources is you quickly get drowned in data. And so having a, a tool like Sprinkler that can be used as an aggregation portal is probably quite worthwhile. And, you know, in terms of data, you're based in, in, in Australia, obviously, in APAC. Um, what, what sort of differences have you seen are between data sets available for, for APAC macro versus EMEA or, or North America? Um, there's quite a bit of a difference on the legal structure of what data is available because different jurisdictions uh, have different levels of uh, consumer and, and personal protections. So the Europeans are quite strict uh, about protecting the personal details, the right to privacy, the right to delete, and, and those types of things have become quite prevalent. They're less so in the US and then parts of Asia are even less um, stringent. So yeah, there's there's big differences about what you can get access to based on that type of um, mm. openness uh, versus privacy protections. Mm. And so you've seen a lot of a lot of use cases over the years. If I was to ask you, you know, what's the best use case you've seen from an asset management perspective? What, what would you say? It's hard to nail down one. I mean, we've been looking at quantitative investing for, well, I've been with JP Morgan for 15 years and, and Barra for seven years before that. Both of them were very quantitatively driven ways at looking at investments, um, always data driven. I think one of the, because of that long history of risk management, uh, one of the insights that I think is quite innovative was um, Northfield added daily news reading algorithms to their risk models. And so they um, modify the single stock marginal risk levels based on the news feeds of, um, of those stocks so that, you know, they adjust their risk models almost in real time, like on a daily basis based on reading the news. I think that's, that's quite an innovative uh, solution that I haven't seen picked up by any of the other risk models. Um, and then, yeah, more broadly, I think bringing NLP into an investment pipeline as an adjunct to earnings-based signals, I think that's going to be quite uh, beneficial and something we haven't looked at personally, but I think using it from an ESG angle for fraud detection or red flag signaling, I think... Um, you can pick up some interesting insights using um, some very carefully crafted natural language processing in that area. It's interesting you mentioned ESG. We, we actually have a, um, a half-day mini-conference on ESG tomorrow, and um, uh, the whole theme is um, 
um, you know, using data to create signals um, as opposed to uh, buying signals built from vendors uh, that are, you know, well-known vendors that are selling ESG signals. So a lot of our clients want to get access to the data themselves to create their own signals. Is that is that consistent with what you're hearing? Yes, it is. But part of the problem then becomes processing all that data. And quite frankly, PDFs are probably the worst way to share data in the world. I really have a pain point around PDFs. I think they should be banned for financial disclosures and uh, we should stick to other forms of text encoding. Hmm. Um, so moving away from maybe the asymmetrical vertical uh, for a few minutes, um, uh, as you know, we've seen data buyers in other verticals like private equity, corporates, governments. Um, love to see, uh, I'd love to hear from you on what you think um, are use cases maybe for private equity to start. Yeah, so we don't deal as much with these different areas, but um, I've come across them over the years. And I think for private equity, I've heard about the um, the pre-deal exploration for private equity when they get access to all of the data in the company's vaults and really do a deep dive analysis looking for red flags. And, you know, you'd need a team of hundreds or thousands of, um, of people to read every report and scour every email or, you know, depending on the level of access they're given. So using machine learning and natural language processing to look at the pre-deal data, I think is is one area that PE has got a bit of an edge. Um, yeah, and the other categories like um, uh, for governments, it, I think government agencies have a slightly bigger mandate than private investment firms. With the government funding um, and, and less focus on profitable management of alpha and potentially bigger budgets, especially on some of the sovereign wealth funds and so on, I think they've actually got a responsibility to educate and enhance machine learning. Um, and so I think really there should be efforts and they should be encouraged to set up centres of excellence and help you know explore some of the problems that are arising with machine learning, like um, ethical issues and bias issues and so on. And then they also have potentially a responsibility and an opportunity to benefit by hiring interns and graduates and working on undergraduate research projects and, and that type of thing. So I think at the, at the sovereign level, the government level, there's, um, there's greater opportunities, but also responsibilities. And, um, you know, given COVID, um, you know, ministries of finance, central banks, municipalities, are, are, are you at JP seeing um, those areas want to engage more to understand what's happening in the economies um, at, at a high level, business activity level, consumer activity level? We're seeing interest across the board based on COVID at trying to understand the impacts and we've sourced different data sets from all over the world, all over the internet. At the start of the COVID crisis, we did a big search. Uh, we published a report based on our all data handbook that listed all of the relevant data sets 
And then since then, there's also been, you know, continuous evolution. Um, a lot of the vendors are using the COVID crisis as a way of uh, launching a COVID website or a page on their on their website where they uh, expose one data set and use it as an example of what they have available. So, you know, the Google Maps and Apple Maps mobility data is one of those uh, data sets that's been cited quite a lot. We've combined that with many others from different organizations to help um, give a better picture of what's happening uh, across the market from different angles. Um, and, and that's been, you know, a big focus. And to jump into the corporate vertical, are you seeing any use cases there? Yeah, the corporate one's interesting as well. Um, you know, my traditional role as a quantitative analyst, we don't deal with company management that often, but we hosted a roundtable uh, a year or two ago and we had some corporates come through talking about how they're using machine learning and um, and related technologies in their business. And the one that I found quite interesting was Downer. It's an industrial mining services company. They basically build and operate mines on a contract basis. And because they're operating on a contract, they get paid for volume of earth moved out of the mine, not so much for what they find in the dirt because that's the mine owner's uh, problem. But So they get paid for by volume moved. And so rather than do manual surveys with lasers and theodolites once a month, they switched to using drones and aerial photography to build 3D maps of the mines and calculate exactly how much volume of earth has been moved on almost a daily basis, bringing forward their earnings because they could now claim, well, we moved so many tonnes this day or this week rather than having to do it on a monthly basis. Fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of examples where um, machine learning and uh, old data techniques are helping corporates and do you think um, drones could be used more, more, more broadly across um, going back to asset managers, uh, the use cases for them? I think the use cases are a little bit more limited. Um, I think because drones are fairly niche, they, they don't have a good range. What we've seen potentially more interesting at the asset manager level is um, is the aerial photography that's getting much higher resolution and much more detailed and much more frequent. So there's companies like Nearmap that are patrolling um, populated cities um, six monthly, maybe even three monthly um, with low-flying aircraft, and they're taking photos vertically like a satellite wouldn't typically, but also at a 45-degree angle. And that way they get height data, which can be useful for measuring the heights of buildings as they're being built and development activity and so on. Um, it's, you know, there, there are plenty of other examples, but they're less applicable to finance, like counting pools or counting, measuring the color of a pool uh, in, you know, in a, uh, an area of a city and saying, all right, well, this area used to be all blue pools. Now they're all green pools. Uh, the wealth and level of activity and financial support in those areas is probably decreasing. So 
um, maybe the wealth in that area is is, is hmm. changing. So it's yeah, not directly applicable to maybe portfolio management on a short term basis, but there's yeah, there's there's yeah, as many ways to use alt data as you can imagine. The problem is, I think, trying to match what is possible with what's relevant. Agreed, agreed. And that, as we look ahead, uh, Barone, you know, what sort of new use cases? Sorry, could you ask again? Sure. Um, as we look ahead, Barone, what sort of new use cases do you see in the future? Oh, crystal ball gazing. Always fun. Um, I think the pace of development in AI and machine learning in general is just going to continue unabated. If you're interested in machine learning, you have to stay relevant. You have to stay current. It's a big effort to stay in um, ahead of the curve. You need to read a lot to find out what is possible. You can spend three, six months building a process only to find out that there's a open source package that does exactly what you want um, and that you know takes three minutes to install. So I think what's possible is going to continue to grow and advance at an amazing pace. Natural language processing is a massive area of development and, and effort by some really large uh, players like Facebook, Microsoft, Open Learning, uh, which is part of the, the spin-off from Facebook. Um, so natural language processing combined with databases of knowledge, like knowledge graphs and so on, I think embedding knowledge into a natural language algorithm will help it understand more about the things that it's reading about. So I expect a lot more development in that area. And then how that approaches and, and infiltrates into the investment process, um, forecasts of all manner will become more automated and potentially more accurate with more sources of data and supporting, uh, supporting data algorithms. There's a lot of mathematicians and so on working on better forecasting models as well. So it's quite exciting times. And what about NLP on uh, voice as opposed to uh, textual documents? Have you had any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's something that is becoming mainstream. Like you can load your sound files up onto a cloud vendor and have it turned into text and then run sentiment analysis on it almost in real time. I've seen examples from one of the cloud vendors talking about their call centers and they are able to split out the voice of the caller and the um, and the call center employee, and they can measure the sentiment and the vocal intonations of the caller and identify, you know, did they call in angry and get more happy as the call progressed, or did they call in happy and get more angry? Um, so the field of, of um, voice analysis is coming a long way where you could see it being related to finance. I've seen cases of, um, you know, speaking back to the fraud area, where if you have a history of a speaker, you can develop 
an understanding of their speech patterns and the pauses that they put between words and sentences. And then you can use that measurement to identify stress. And typically when people are reporting facts, they speak at a faster pace because it's drawing from memory. They don't need to construct a story and they can go from memory to speech very quickly. Whereas if they're lying, they typically have to go from, well, memory of other lies I've told that are related, craft the story and then deliver the speech. And there can be perceptible but minute differences in the way they speak when they're doing this. And so I've I've heard examples of um, fraud detection on speech behaviour being used. I think this area is fascinating. And and, I mean, do you think, um, you know, the ability to analyze CEO and CFO comments on on, on earnings announcements um, can help detect how confident or you know worried they are I do I haven't tried it myself so I can't really comment on how effective it might be but I've definitely heard of that as an area of research and you know it's something that the fundamental PMs have been claiming to be able to do for for decades so yeah i think that would be another field of um of research and exploration mm. very good well look baron uh, thank you so much for for joining the show today uh, really deep insight on nlp specifically and uh, yeah thanks again well thanks for having me it's been an exciting discussion and um, i look forward to hearing some of the others that's a wrap for this episode of profiting from data thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.